So as I mentioned, the book of Habakkuk is really only three chapters. That's why he's one of the minor prophets. It's a short book. Uh, But we come here to the second complaint in Habakkuk. And I want you to think as we come to this text, uh, have you ever yourself waited a long time for something? Maybe a silly question because most of us have waited at least what we think is a long time. Maybe it was New Year's. You felt like 2022 is never going to get here. Maybe for some kids, maybe it's Christmas or a birthday. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's dinner out with your spouse. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it's a spouse, a wife or a husband, and you feel like you've waited years and years, and God has not brought this person into your life. Well, the reality is we wait for a lot of things in our life, a lot of people and a lot of events. And so often, the length of time that we wait begins to factor into whether we believe that thing will really happen or not. You know, it's interesting that, of course, New Year's has already come and gone. I feel like it wasn't, it really came quickly, and then by the time it comes, it's already passed. A birthday is over before it's even begun. Maybe even a family vacation, right? You're waiting for this to happen, and then you're really, you're getting back to work before you feel like you've even settled into the house. But all those things, temporary though they may be, they're kind of these little, little hints to us about God's faithfulness, about how over and over again, he is the God who sustains us. He is the God on whom we are called to wait. And so Habakkuk here is called to wait on God's promises to be fulfilled. You'll notice that came in verse 3. But all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. His promises are faithful. And he is faithful to his promises because of who he is. And God is drawing our eyes as he's drawing Habakkuk's eyes in this text upward. He's reminding Habakkuk, just as he's reminding us, that so often we're dealing with the day-to-day realities or the year-to-year realities or the decade-to-decade realities of life. And God is above it all. And he reminds us to draw our eyes upward, to see as he sees. And he reminds us to take that step back. Because the solution to Habakkuk's problem here, to his complaint, is really the same solution that we need for our daily waiting. For the turmoils, the sufferings, the sin, the struggles that we feel in here internally, but also that come externally. Because that's really what Habakkuk is dealing with. And so you'll notice we'll look at the text here in two divisions. First, to wait expectantly, and then to wait faithfully, because that's really the point of the text, is that we're called to expectantly, to faithfully wait on the Lord to fulfill his promises to us. So let's look there at chapter 2. We're going to focus on chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, But we've read chapter 1 to give us some context here uh, by way of explanation. So how do we wait expectantly on God? Well, notice what Habakkuk does here. He's he's brought this complaint to God in chapter 1. And you'll notice it comes there at the end of verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Well, the first question in your mind should be, who's the he, right? Who's the he? Well, Habakkuk is written at this time between the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. If you know your history, you know the Assyrians took the northern tribes captive. The Babylonians would take the southern tribes, Judah in particular, captive. 
And he's writing at this time of uncertainty. Assyria is dwindling in power, but Babylon is on the rise. And Babylon is this new power on the horizon that he can see is going, God has revealed to him, is going to take Judah captive. And so Habakkuk here is saying, how can you use Babylon, who has committed idolatry, who has committed sin against you, who is worshiping to all these other false gods, even worshiping to his net? He thinks that his net is the one, or his riches are the things that are saving his soul. And so Habakkuk says, verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post. How will you answer me? Because based on what I see, Babylon is being used by you, God, to take your people captive. And I don't understand how in the world that's going to factor into your plan. How is that a good thing? How can you, verse 13, how can you who are of purer eyes than to see evil look at wrong? How can you do this, God? And you'll notice that can kind of smack us if we're reading this on a very cursory level, it can smack us as almost irreverent the way Habakkuk does it. But I challenge you that, no, in fact, Habakkuk is complaining to God. He is not complaining about God. And I think that's an important distinction for us to make, is that we ought to bring our complaints to God in prayer, in petitions, reverently recognizing, as Habakkuk does, who he is and what he has done for us and not complaining about him and about what he has done to others, or even in our own hearts to complain and grumble. And so here Habakkuk, verse 1 of chapter 2, says, I will wait on your answer. So we see there that we wait expectantly by first cherishing God's answer. Habakkuk trusts that God is going to respond to his complaint. He doesn't simply complain fold up his, or uh, lift up his hands and say, oh, well, I guess this is all that I can do. No, he's complaining to God because he recognizes that God will respond. He recognizes that God's answer is something to be cherished. It's something to be held on to. It's something to be looked forward to expectantly, knowing that God will answer. And so God then ultimately will give his answer as this text develops. Well, we've seen he's complaining ultimately about the Babylonians, yes. But again, God's drawing Habakkuk's eyes upward. And he's saying the Babylonians are a problem. But even more than that, the world around you is, and the sin in your own hearts, is a greater problem still. And I think the first lesson we need to take away from this is that God responds when we bring our complaints when we cry out to him. Don't take that for granted. Do not take the response, the answer of God for granted. How often do we do that? How often do we either pray to God out of rote repetition, simply as a thing to do because we know we're supposed to, or if we do pray, we we simply do it um, because we, because God will, yes, he'll answer me, but it might take a little while. And, it, and really, I, I don't think he's going to answer me today. But we recognize that God does answer us immediately. That answer may be wait. That answer may be no. But God does answer you when you cry out to him. And so when you pray, do you believe that he answers? Do you know, do you gain confidence from God's sure answer? And is it enough, is it enough 
that God has spoken. We recognize that we hold in our hands God's word. Habakkuk has, from the revelation of God, God's word. And he'll talk about, in verse 2, this vision that God is bringing. You'll notice there, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. When God speaks to us, he speaks with a vision. He speaks with words that are sufficient for our daily life. But the reality is, so often we look to other people. We look to other voices. We look to other places for the solutions to our problems that are right in God's word. And we're often tested, I think, on whether we really believe the Bible is the sufficient word of God in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of temptation. And so is it enough that God has spoken? Is the word of God sufficient for you today? So we wait expectantly, not only by cherishing the answer, not only on trusting that God will respond to us, but secondly, we wait expectantly by recounting God's promises. Look there again at verse 2. What does God tell Habakkuk to do? Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Write the vision, make it plain. So there's two imperatives and really the same commands. What are we supposed to do? What is Habakkuk supposed to do? Make the word of God known. Publish God's commands, his promise, the vision that he has given. And you'll notice what's fascinating about this is Uh, Habakkuk is in the midst of this complaint. He's in the midst of this turmoil. He's in the midst of a Babylonian empire that's up and coming, if you will, and he is afraid, and he'll say that later. We'll get to that in chapter 3. But what does God say first to do? Write the vision, make it plain, so he may run who reads it. And so we're called to recount these promises of God in the midst of sin and suffering, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of these uncertainties of life, so that others may run, so that they may read, so that they may remember God's promises. And in so doing, that we may remember, we may recount, we may write, and we may run as well. And what are we running from? Well, we're running from sin, We're running from temptation. We're running from wickedness. And God will get to that in the revelation of Habakkuk. But we're running to God. We run to his faithfulness. We run to the sure promise that he will answer us. That we wait on him, not just because we're twiddling our thumbs and we need something to do, but because he is faithful. Because his promise is a sure promise because his word is a sure word because it's living and active and that's what God tells Habakkuk to rely on he says when you don't see when you don't see the realities of my promise today trust write make it known that I have promised and I am faithful and I will surely do it so do you recount God's promises during suffering Do you recount God's promises with your wife, with your husband? Do you remind each other that God is faithful? And sometimes when we do that, even in our own families, whether it's with our children or other people, what do we we often think, well, that's just sort of holier than thou, right? If we repeat God's words after him, well, I need to think of a better way to say it or a different way to say it or a more convincing way to say it. 
No, God has said, my word is enough. My word is sufficient. And yes, it comes, yes, there is a certain level of trying to help people understand. Yes, there is a level of uh, bringing the people the word for the time. But do you encourage others with God's promises, or do you encourage people with your promises, what you, what you want for them, or with what God wants for them? And do you encourage others with those promises when you too, like Habakkuk, are suffering? Not when you are, everything's going well, and you feel like you're in a position where now, okay, now I can talk to other people about what God has done. No, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of struggling with the realities of what God is doing, do you bring his word to others? Do you bring even his vision to those around you? So we recount God's promises by waiting, and we recount God's promises by, uh, by being mindful of what he has done for us, but we also have to trust those promises so we are writing the vision, making it plain on tablets. And what's the purpose? Uh, verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. There's the command. It will surely come. It will not delay. So we see here both the, we trust in God's promises because they will be fulfilled and because they are faithful. Notice there, still the vision awaits its appointed time. So often we think that, well, like we think about New Year's or Christmas or a birthday, well, this is just so far off, I don't, I don't even know if it's going to get here. Peter, uh, when my family was supposed to come for Christmas, and about a week beforehand or so, he said, are, are they really coming? Are they really coming? It's, it's been two whole, two whole days we've been waiting, Dad. Are they really coming? interestingly enough they never did come uh, but that was in, in God's providence all of that worked out and I was reminded though as I'm telling Peter we've got you know the days counting down on the whiteboard that so often we need that reminder why do I write down the days till Christmas or the days till New Year's because I need to be reminded that it's coming because I forget and I question and I wonder is it really coming I'm just I'm honestly just like a three-year-old in that failing to see the promise, failing to believe and trust that it's coming. Think about Galatians 4, chapter 4, and how long Israel had to wait for Christ's first advent. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years from the time of Adam when Christ was first prophesied that he would crush the serpent's head. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in the fullness of time. Psalm 75, at the set or the appointed time that I appoint, I will judge with equity, with justice. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I, God, who keeps steady its pillars. When all else seems like it's falling apart, it is God who steadies the earth, who upholds all things by the word of his power. This is, verse 3, a preordained, this appointed time is a preordained, a certain time that God himself determines. So why do we believe the promise? Why do we believe that Christ is even coming now? Because he who promised is faithful. Because God is faithful. 
Calvin says this about verse 3. The Lord does not immediately execute or do. The Lord does not immediately execute what he declares by his mouth, but his purpose is to prove our patience, to prove the obedience of our faith. That faith is certainly the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, but it also is proving out our patience, the obedience of faith, as Calvin says. Because the promise, you'll notice, is appointed, but it's also, in verse 3, hastening to the end. It will not lie. God does not lie, therefore his promises do not lie. God is faithful, he surely does it, therefore his promises will surely come. In fact, Lamentations reminds us here, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So does the timing of God's answer, does the timing of his answer affect your faith in him? There are things that we have to wait for over and over and over and over. Things that we may not even see until heaven. Sin that we have dealt with day in and day out, year in and year out. We have prayed and knelt before the throne of grace and we have pleaded with God. And we work as he works, yes. But there is an aspect to which we need to also trust and wait on him because he is faithful. He will surely do it. And we begin to question in our minds at times, will he? The, the serpent, did he really say? So does the timing affect your faith? Does your trust uh, rest in who he is, in his due time? So we trust in God's promises because he is faithful. Notice verse 3, the end. If it, seems, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The command there is to wait. The command there is to stop. The command there is to be still and know that I am God. It is I who have made you. You have not made yourself all your value, all of the gifts you have, the graces you have are from me. It's a gift. So wait. God will free his people, even here from Babylon. The remnant will return. Christ will come, and he will come again. Justice will prevail. The wicked will be destroyed. And in fact, God reminds us of this over and over when David and Asaph and Job and Habakkuk and Moses and so many others throughout Scripture. Is it really going to happen? We're reminded that the true sacrifice of praise, the true sacrifice of praise is offered when we restrain ourselves, when we remain firm and fixed on God's God and his promises, the true sacrifice of praise, is offered when we restrain ourselves, when we remain fixed on God's promises, and we remain fixed on his faithfulness. So what happens if things are falling apart? Wait on the Lord. Habakkuk is asking that exact question. What happens when the wicked prosper? What happens when Babylon is at the gates and they're storming the gates of Jerusalem, your holy city? Wait on me. 
because my purposes will not be thwarted. Babylon is my instrument. Nebuchadnezzar will be used by me. Darius will be used by me. Nehemiah will be used by me to bring about my holy ends. And so that's when we begin to really see when the rubber meets the road, is God's word, is his revelation enough? Is he enough for us? When we're dealing with the trials of life, even as Habakkuk, the realities of, a, of an invading empire, which I don't think any of us have really seen that, but the realities of the invasion of sin in our hearts, the realities of the pressing in of the world, of the darkness around us, even, even the realities of how desperately wicked we are internally, when those things press in on the gates of Jerusalem and you feel like you're doing everything you can, wait on the Lord Plead on his promises. Cry out to him. Get on your knees in prayer and bring your petitions to a faithful God. In the midst of these persistent battles over and over and you feel like years and decades have been spent, even you feel like wasted, remember that he is faithful. There is no time wasted with God. So why should we wait? Why should we believe this promise? And we have it at the end of verse 3. It will surely come. It will not delay. We feel like thousands of years. That's a long time. Revelation 22. What did Jesus say? I am coming soon. I'm coming quickly. 2,000 years. That seems like an awful long time. Is that quick? With God, it is. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. It will surely come. It won't delay. In my timing, it is perfect. The fullness of time. When all things are ready, when Christ comes in his glory, it will seem as if it were a day. And all the waiting, and all the trusting, and all the believing in the promise, when others were laughing, even think about Noah, building that ark for years and years, and the neighbors were just jeering at him. It will surely come. It is God who tells you this, James chapter 1. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, with whom there is no shadow due to change. You think about other people, when they, when they tell us, I'm sure, you get somebody, you're asking, well, do you think, what do you think the outcome for the football game? Yeah, I'm sure this team's going to win. I'm sure. And then they don't. What do you, when you go back to that person, what do they say? Well, I, I didn't know. I mean, obviously, there's, there, are these, there are these plays that they ran, and I, didn't, I thought they'd do this, and they did that. God, God knows. His, his omniscience goes beyond anything we can imagine. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees all the players on the field. When he says it will happen, it will happen. When someone else tells you, yeah, I'm sure, so often we can begin to impugn God. We can begin to think that God is like that. And when he says, I'm sure, it's almost like another person assuring us that they're right. And it's just a competition between God and the forces of evil. Brothers and sisters, that in our hearts is idolatry. 
That's idolatrous for us to think that God is somehow fighting against the forces of evil. No, all things, all things are in his hand. The devil in Job has to go to him to even ask if he can deal with Job. So we are called to wait expectantly. And we are also called to wait faithfully. And this is really the heart and the crux of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul, the Babylonian soul, the wicked soul, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. What a a turn you have there. In all the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of pride, in the midst of upheaval, in the kingdom of Judah at the time, the righteous live by faith. And this is the cornerstone of Romans. Paul uses this verse, chapter 4, or verse 4 of chapter 2, as the cornerstone of that greatest and clearest depiction of the gospel. The righteous live by faith. We reject, on the one hand, unrighteous pride. His soul, verse, or chapter, uh, verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is prideful. It is not upright within him. We reject pride Because God is addressing Habakkuk's complaint and he's saying, wait a second. You, we believe that everything revolves around us. That if it's not the way I want, if it's not the way I planned, then it's not not good. But God is drawing Habakkuk's eyes. He's drawing our eyes upward and he's saying, be still and be humble. Give up your pride. Give up your self-reliance. Fix your gaze on heaven because your enemy seeks to deceive you about God's promises. He seeks to say, did God really say? And we not only reject then unrighteous pride, but we also wait faithfully by embracing the sure redemption of Christ because the righteous live by faith in him. It is Christ that Habakkuk, I am 100% sure, it is Christ that Habakkuk has in view here. The righteous live by faith in him, in his promises. And God is saying, look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of your faith. Faith is in direct opposition to pride. Pride depends on self. Faith depends on God. Pride depends on present realities. Faith depends on future realities. Calvin says, faith strips us of all arrogance. It leads us naked, needy to God, that we may seek salvation from him alone. Faith embraces, our confession says, faith embraces the promises of God for this life and for the life to come. So where is your faith? Is it in yourself? Is it in present realities? Is it in what you see, touch, taste, feel, and know in here? Or is it, in what, is it what you know in here? Is it a description of who God is? Or is it a description of who you are? Is your faith fixed on Christ, on heaven? Because eternal life in Christ is only possible through faith in him through faith in his righteousness, in what he has accomplished for you and for me. And if you do not believe that this morning, then you have no hope. Then your life is lived in pride, not in faith. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you that this is a reality not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer too. 
Our faith waxes and wanes. It goes up and it goes down. But God reminds us here that the life we live, we live in Christ, both for today and for eternity. That the life we live, we have in him and only in him. We live and move and have our being in Christ. So are you walking in faith? upon God, who is your only hope for salvation, for the present, for the future, whether it's fighting an internal enemy of depression, of fear, of doubt, of anxiety, of jealousy, of worry, whatever it may be. God is sufficient. His word is sufficient for you. Are you fighting an external enemy? Maybe it's finances. Maybe you don't know how you're going to get to the end of the month. Maybe it's dissensions among families, extended families, or even close families. Maybe you and your wife or your husband have been apart for months and years, and you have not known the love of Christ because you're looking to yourself or you're looking to your spouse for salvation. It is Christ alone who saves. It is not our children. It is not our spouses. It is not our pastors. It is Christ. God's call then to us is to expectant and faithful waiting. To expectantly and faithfully wait upon him to fulfill his promises. He is faithful. He will do it. And so we wait on God. We cry out to him. We cling to Christ. We trust in his righteousness. We rest in his promises. We rest in his righteousness because it is all of Christ. He is faithful and he will surely do it. Let's pray together.